There's founders and there's CEOs, and the best founders know when it's time to hand over to a CEO. And I would survive on a coffee and a pasta to get me through every day. And I fainted on my way to get my coffee. And I said, fuck, something's got to change. I think when you're so obsessed over an idea that you have, you become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business for we do it from an immersive, but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way. And we're looking at five key areas. We're looking at your psychology. We're looking at your marketing, your sales, your leadership, and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly. So if you'd like to find out more information, KerwinRay.com. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my absolute pleasure today to welcome to the studio, the unstoppable studio. Uh, that has been decentralized. We're now completely global. We're now completely digital. Uh, but it is an absolute honor and pleasure to welcome. Now, get this, ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Premu. <laughs> I knew I was going to fuck this up. Premutico. Premutico. There we go. Mate, great to have you on, mate. And uh, yeah, real pleasure, especially during these times. I know it's a little, like, it's kind of interesting because for some people, it's like, well, is it actually a challenge or is it now actually more convenient? You know, I'm, I'm finding, um, personally, I'm becoming a lot more efficient with, you know, conversations, communications, and I'm actually finding that I'm more efficient now, but I actually have a little bit more time. Like, what are you finding, mate? Uh, I'd say the productivity has increased materially. Um, yeah, right. But I, I'm, a, I'm a touchy-feely leader, so I need yeah, to feel too. my people. I need to see them. Yeah. Um, I need to be surrounded by yeah. the noise and the buzz uh, that happens yeah. in, a, in an office. So I, 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 I do miss that. Yeah, no, I, I, and as someone who, um, yeah, loves people, I can completely relate. But I'm, I have to say, and we'll, we'll dive into the conversation shortly. I am flabbergasted though with the amount of conversations that people had that weren't required, that have now <laughs> literally fallen away and created this level of, you know, for us anyway, this level of streamline in, uh, in comms that is, yeah, is fantastic. But mate, I've got to say, first of all, thank you for being here. Mate, you're the uh, you've got an incredible track record, as I've already mentioned. You uh, are that what you know uh, this incredible. You founded Dimmy, which is now known as the Fork, um, and your story is actually pretty incredible because you actually your story. You're obviously your household name now um, here in Australia with Dimmy. But what I'm curious to know is more about the story behind Dimmy and how that came to be because you know most people may not know you personally because I know you keep a pretty low profile, um, but they would know Dimmy. But I'm curious to know, how did you actually get to Dimmy in the first place? So what's the story, mate? Where did it all begin? I get, I get shivers even thinking about it, Kerwin. But, um, yeah, I saw that. So I, I, was, I was in the hotel game. So I was a director of marketing for Hilton Hotels, <clears throat> running 30 hotels across London. So there I was, a little Aussie, larrikin, you know, 25-year-old kid. And I walked into my boss one day and I said, Mike, you know, I think we should be doing this and this and this and this and this. And he turned around to me and he said, Steve, you know, I think you're right, but at Hilton things take time. And I and that that just hit me like nothing else. And the next day I had my performance review with my boss, uh, and that was in Madrid. And I jumped on a flight. And as I jumped on that flight, rather than writing a justification for a pay rise, I wrote my resignation letter. And I walked into my <clears throat> to my boss that day, and I <clears throat> and I said, Cynthia, I've got to go. Um, and she said, But so, like, where do you need to go? <clears throat> and I said, Cynthia, I've just got to go. And in that moment, I quit. And the crazy thing was that I I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't have a job. I didn't have anything else lined up. But I just knew that I was in, on this planet to do something else, to do something bigger. And that's where my startup journey began. So for the next year of my life, I lived in an attic and I conceptualized what became Dimmy. Um, and that was just a crazy, you know, one year, you know, 20 hour day surviving on no money, you know, no income, you know, um, 
So you literally were living in an, in an attic, like just brainstorming like uh, at a recluse every day? Like, was this a beautiful mind? Like, what did it look like? I'm curious. <laughs> what it looked like was that the only thing I had outside my window was garbage bins and I could just see rats, you know, um, in, in Maidavale in London. And, mate, it was, it was crazy because I think you've got to be at a particular stage in your life when you can do that. So I just put everything on the line and I said, I'm going to go for this. And I quit. You know, I didn't have a mortgage. I wasn't in a relationship. So I could afford to do that. Yeah. And then I just spent the next year of my life trying to work out what what Dimmy was. And, you know, um, I, I was desperately trying to raise money during that time. Um, you know, I got, I got rejected. But at this point, you're trying to raise money for an idea, I'm assuming. There's nothing there. It's vaporware. Is this right or...? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, it started as vaporware, and then sort of as every day progressed, you know, it it turned into something. And you know, it um, it's it's a crazy ride. But I think when you're so obsessed over an idea that you have, you become unstoppable. And I was mm. truly in this frame of mind and this frame of thinking that no matter how many knockbacks, no matter how much you know you're you know you get no sleep you're not eating anything you know like it, it kind of got to a point part way through this was almost at the end of the one-year journey where i was on my way to starbucks because i had no money so that's where i would go for my morning coffee and i would survive on a coffee and a pasta to get me through every day and i fainted on my way to get my coffee and i said fuck something's got to change so i jumped on a plane I came back to Australia and lucky when I landed back in Australia, a friend of a friend of a friend gave me a hundred thousand bucks. And that was <laughs> enough. And that, that, that was enough for Dimmy to be born. Yeah. And, right. You know, and then Cause from there, up until this you know, point, is this just, is this just like uh, drawings on napkins? Like, have you actually got any, any code down? Like, mate, it's, it's crazy. Like it, it started. How did you get a, someone to give you a hundred grand? So it started on a napkin and, you yep. know, some red, you know, some ink and, you know, you, you sketch out um, an idea that then turned into, um, cause I'm a very visual person. So I need to see what I'm thinking. So I then turned that into PowerPoint slides and, you know, that becomes the business model. It becomes, you know, the website, the app. Um, and sitting behind that is, you know, the budget and, and you know, and, and the numbers. So when I took that to, to my investors, you know, um, that's what you're pitching. That's what you're selling. That's a story you're trying to articulate. Um, but all I had was, you know, PowerPoint slides um, and me. Uh, there was no app. There was no website. There was no, there was nothing else. And let's just insert one one other little uh, interesting um, side note. And it was two thousand and nine. Is that right? We'd just yeah. gone into the GFC. Yeah, timing wasn't great <laughs> because <laughs> apparently it was. I, it wasn't great, but I'd say this: that if the GFC didn't happen, Dimmy probably would have, would never have happened. Because mm. so I was, you know, in that one year, I was I was desperate to you know, to try and get some income from somewhere. So I was looking for side jobs and everything, you know, um, and there was no jobs anywhere, you know. Um, and I was, a, you know, I was a regional director of marketing, so I had a good gig. Um, I then got offered, and this is a crazy bit, I got offered an opportunity to head up the launch of Virgin in Australia. So all I had at this point was, you know, a sketch of an idea and something yeah. that was starting to, you know, form very deeply in, in, inside of me. And then I get this offer from Virgin to come and head up the launch of Virgin in Australia. And man, that I'd say that that was without question wow. the hardest decision of my life. Um, and I don't know how and I don't know why, but, but I said no to that and I said yes to this idea that I had. And I think it, there's something very powerful in that naivety, that craziness, that stupidity. Um, but I said no to Virgin and I said yes to Dimmy and 
what became the craziest decision of my life became the best at the same time. And so this is in 2009. You're you're filled with obsession and naivety, which I think are two very important ingredients in um, in obsession, uh, obsession driven success. You've now got a hundred grand in your pocket. What do you do? Yeah, you're now not eating just one meal a day at Starbucks. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so three things happened. Um, I employed people. Yeah. So I now employed the sales uh, sales people to go out and start selling the idea. Uh, number one and number two is I found an app developer to build what was in my head and what was mm. on the PowerPoint slides. Um, but I was still working from home. Um, I was still desperately on the phone trying to, you know, trying to get convinced restaurant owners to see me. Um, and you know, shit gets real. Like, you know, you've now got some. It's it's not your money. It's somebody else's money. And when yeah. it's somebody else's money, you treat it with so much more discipline and respect um, than it is if if it's just yours. If if you have a conscience, because let's let's be honest, I'm sure you've seen plenty of people in the space that get a little bit of funding and it's like, oh my God, now I can pay myself a bigger wage. So it sounds like you had a much greater level of respect uh, for money, even though it was someone else's at that point. Yeah, I think you have to. I think as an investor, when, when an investor backs a founder, they're, they're backing you and they're backing the integrity and they're backing... Mm. The, like nobody knows what sits in those PowerPoint slides and nobody's got any idea if if it's a real business or not. What what they're backing is does this founder have the the intensity? Do they have the the resilience to get through when shit gets hard and can they keep going? So for me, you know, I was so, so, so grateful that I found somebody who believed in me. I was going to do whatever it took to make sure that 100,000 bucks went as far as it needed to mm. to make sure that this thing could come alive. So I didn't pay myself an income. I was living at home um, and I tried to stretch it as far as I could. So proper bootstrapping. I think it's the only way. Yeah. Even now with you know startup number two, you know, there's something that's beautiful about the, you know, about having nothing. Mm. It forces you to a place of desperation um, and hunger that I think is so so essential in the startup ingredient. Mm. That's so true. And so, mate, you 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 mentioned something about the the challenge of getting businesses to buy in early on, um, the early adoption phase. How long did it take before you realized that there was actually something there? And and it, did it kind of push you to any points where you were like, you know, did you get close to running out of that 100 grand before you started to get the traction that was required? And did you question it a few times along the way? Mate, I'd say that there wasn't a day that passed in the 10-year ride at Dimmy that I didn't want to throw it all in. Wow. Yeah, that's – I think that's just – like trying to introduce tech into any industry is hard. Trying to yeah. introduce technology into the hospitality space that is, you know, as antiquated as it gets is impossible. So, you know, every every meeting that you're having with an with an owner and an operator is, yeah, I love it, but you know, it's um, you know, we like to speak to our customers. So they couldn't get their head around the fact that customers hated calling them to make a booking, sending an email and never getting a response. So we had to bring them them on that journey. And that was that was a tough slog. So, um, yeah, so, you know, I, there was never a day that passed in 10 years where, you know, because, you know, it's a lonely ride. You're in it with, a full, with an exceptional team, but at the end of the day, you're in it on your own. Um, and, you know, you see the guy in the surfboard on his way to the beach, you know, at five o'clock in the morning when you're going to the office and you, you question yourself, man, you go like, why, why am I doing this? And I think that only comes from a place of 
believing so deeply in something that you you obsess over solving a problem or making mm. an industry better or leaving a dent on the planet that you get through that and you keep going another day. What made you obsess over that problem specifically? And what was the problem that you were actually trying to solve, that you did solve? Well, I think I think it's like my parents are small business people. So I come what from business? a place. What do they do? My mum was a hairdresser. My father ran the post office. Yeah, wow. Know? Okay, proper. <laughs> proper. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and later in life, my parents ran a, you know, a um, – a cafe slash restaurant, you know, in Sydney. And so I, I come from a place where I truly understand the heartache, the pain, mm. the hours that go into hard running work. a small business, the hard work. Um, and I wanted to try and do something that improved the underlying economics of this industry. Um, and I obsessed over that. And if I could help operators run a better business, if I could help them make more money, if I could help them spend more time with their kids, if I could help the customer experience be better so that we could jump on, push a button and make a booking, then that was beautiful. Mm. So that was what I obsessed over. You know, can I help make this industry that I love better? Because I, mm. you know, I'm an Italian kid, as you realize with my surname. Um, so I, I, I grew up in a world where every Sunday would, would we be down my grandparents for the big fat mm. Italian lunch, right? That's just what yeah. we did. Yeah. And it was food and wine and laughter and tears and arguments. But I grew up knowing nothing else but the magic that happens around food when you're breaking bread with family. So – you know, mm. 25 years later, when I'm thinking about what am I going to do with my life, everything came back to hospitality because I I realized that the best moments in life happen around food. And if I could make it easier, better for operators, better for customers, and just create more of the beauty that happens when you're with friends and family around the table – then that was something that I wanted to put my name to and something that mm. I wouldn't obsess over. Wow. And so you um, you ended up building that business for how long, Demi, before you sold to TripAdvisor? Yeah, that was a 10-year ride. Um, and then the crazy thing is, you know, I got three knocks on the door from three big investors or big companies all at the same time. Did you only um, do the one round of investment with that with with Demi? No, I we raised about ten million bucks um, okay. over the over the ten years. So Telstra, Village Roadshow, um, you know, and a whole bunch of you know high profile investors came on board for that for that ride. Fantastic. And so, what at what point did you know? Okay, I now want to sell because I, I get the sense you didn't sell out. You sold. You didn't, but you didn't sell out. Your heart is still very much in not even so much the app, but the industry itself, and you know the whole concept around food. Which I'm gonna... it, it was a pretty um, pivotal moment in my life because like, you get knocks on the door all the time and mm. typically you take them and it's either an international bully who's trying to scare, scare you to sell or it's somebody who's just, you know, just shopping around. So when we kind of got three knocks at the same time, I took that to my board and the board said something to me that, you know, at that time, I just I didn't comprehend. They said, "Steve, do you have it in you to keep going? So how do you how do you feel?" And that's not a bored question, right? That's not you know, from you know, a bunch of people sitting around a board table trying to work out you know how you're going to make this business work. That was a deeply emotional, um, confrontational question that I had to face. And the question was, you know, how do you feel? And I didn't realize it at the time, but the subtext was, did I have it in me to keep going? And so I, for 10 years of my life, I'd given this business everything I had. So, you know, 20 hour days, you know, six days a week, like I was all in. Um, and so when it kind of got to that point, I couldn't, I couldn't see myself going another five years. 
Mm. So that was the moment that I realized, you know, like I, I love this business. I love this industry. I loved and I was super proud of what we created. But there was something else out there that was waiting for me. So I used this as an opportunity to hand over my baby to somebody else. So TripAdvisor came and acquired the business. Um, I asked them to look after the business and treat it with respect um, and, and love it and take care of it. Um, Has that happened? It's difficult when a big business buys a, buys a small business. Mm. Your motivations become different. Yeah. It becomes more about making money than making a dent on the planet. Yeah. Um, okay. And then I... I spent a year of my life trying to work out what I was going to do next. And, you know, I'll never forget a month. You know, I, I, my Can I ask life, you a question around that? Sure. And maybe I'm heading in that direction. Like <laughs> did, when, when you sold out, did you have that moment where once you handed the keys over and I don't know what your, you know, your sell out or your buy it looked like, but did you have that moment where essentially you got to the exit point, handing over the keys, whatever it was, we are like, fuck, what am I going to do now? Was no, that your life so yeah. – no, okay, right. How, yeah. Tell me. It's, it, it, it's weird because, you know, you know, you know my partner, but, you know, and I, and I was very fortunate to be with Lisa, you know, at the end of my ride. And I was already ready to go again. Like I had my next business and it was like go. And Lisa was, um, was exceptional and she told me, she said stop. And that was not some. That was not an idea that I was, you know, <laughs> I was conditioned to. <laughs> yeah, she right. Said, Stop. And I did. So, you know, in my in my last interview with Damon Kidney from the Australian, I said, you know, I would never, ever, ever do this startup thing again because I was exhausted. I was spent. But Lisa said, "Stop," and I did. So I took a year off. I went and I went and did the Camino Santiago, which is this crazy. Thousand kilometer, kilometer, thirty day hike across Spain, um, and it's amazing when you know when it's just you, you and your backpack, no phone, no connection, you know, for thirty days, and it's left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. There's a beauty in that. And, you know, that was a remarkable moment in life, my life because I could, I could close one chapter and start to craft the next. Um, and that was, you know, through that journey, you know, I realized a couple of things, but more than anything else, I realized that I'm a startup guy. It's what I'm here to do. And I, you know, I, I obsess over using tech to make the world a bit better and, you know, the industry that I'm deeply obsessed around and I love is the hospitality game. So I want to use tech to make this industry better. So I did 30-day walk across Spain. I came back and I went and hung out, which I, is where I think you are now, in Byron Bay. We've got a place in Bangalore. So I went and hung out in Bangalore for, oh, beautiful. for a few weeks. And I had 34 ideas and I just locked myself away and I sketched every idea out and I started to feel into what I wanted to do for the next 10 years of my life. Um, yeah, that was the journey that I, I went through. And when was that? So that was three years back now. Okay. And where did that, um, that sketch session get you? Where are we now? <laughs> 34 ideas that I deeply believe in. Um, mm -hmm. One that I think um, can make this industry better. Um, so I started a company called Me and You. Um, Me and You, if you think about all of the experiences we have in pubs, cafes, and restaurants, there's three things that are common. The first is that we inevitably stick our hand up in the air, trying to get attention from the waiter, you know. We inevitably spend three, four, five, six minutes at the end of the meal hanging around to pay the bill, to split the bill, the awkward tipping moment. And then, you know, we kind of, you know, 
we hang out at a bar in a queue waiting to order a beer. So I kind of looked at all of that and said, well, the world's changed. I can get in and out of an Uber and not and not have to exchange cash and card. Why can't I have an amazing meal and just get up and go? Why can't I sit in a pub um, and just, you know, get a beer delivered to my table? That's ultimately what hospitality is. So mm. I started a company called Me and You, which is centered around, you know, creating that experience, getting rid of the friction, getting rid of the shit, and allowing people to have, you know, better experiences that, you know, don't result in us losing time, you know, paying the bill and the shit that doesn't matter. Um, I've um, I've been lucky enough to, you know, get an exceptional team around me, um, an exceptional board of directors and advisors and investors, um, including people like Justin Hems, you know, William Easton, who's a boss of Facebook, Cliff Rosenberg of Afterpay. So, you know, an exceptional board of directors and investors and, you know, <laughs> together we want to solve this problem and uh, and hopefully have a second crack at making this industry a bit better. And so in terms of where you are, that crack, because you as soon as you said – uh, like sitting down, having a meal, and then standing up to leave, like the Uber of restaurants or having a beer delivered. I was just like, all of a sudden, I was like, that just makes so much sense. It's that friction. You know, even sometimes just sitting there, the amount of businesses that have that friction of needing a team member to go to the table to ask if someone wants a drink when they probably would have had three drinks if someone had just gone there. Yeah. So in terms of how you're removing that friction using technology, are you at that development stage yet or is it still a little conceptual? Wait, so let me go back a step quickly. Yeah. So if I can, then I answer the question. <clears throat> there's there's a there's a statesman in our industry, a guy named Ronnie Destasio, who runs who owns a restaurant in Melbourne called Cafe Destasio, and um, it's an institution. And about seven years ago, I, was, I sat in his restaurant with him, and he walked in. And he said, "Steve, what?" why can't I do Uber in my business? And I looked at him and I said, like, you're crazy. Like, what do you mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. he's a 70, 70-year-old man. And then I realized what he meant. Why do I have to sit at my table at the end of having had a magical meal and now – I've got to summons a waiter. The waiter's got to bring over a terminal. We're going to work out who's paid what. I've got to call the waiter over again. He's going to come over with the terminal. We're going to split the bill. It just made no sense. So I think this seed was planted back then. Um, you know, when I caught up with Justin Hems, you know, about a year and a half ago, you know, one of the big things that Justin wanted to solve across his portfolio was to eliminate the bill. Mm. So we're – we're about two years into the me and you journey um, where we we now partner with most of the top tier um, venues across Sydney and Melbourne, you know, brands like the Rockpool Group and the Opera Bar and, you know, the top um, pedigree venues. Um, and we're on the journey. So customers rock up, they tap, um, the ordering experience starts, it's beautiful, it's friction-free, and at the end, my Uber's outside and I go. That's it. Oh. So we're at the beginning so of the journey. But yeah, right. But you're at that testing phase right now. Yeah, we're past. We're, mate, we're, we're in a couple of hundred venues. Um, Ooh, you gosh, know, we're, so yeah. So a beautiful part in the journey, actually. So I guess a, a really appropriate question at this point is, has there been a pivot or an innovation as a result, a result of – you know the, the the situation we find ourselves in right now with COVID. Cohen, that's that's a fascinating question, man. You know, and Lisa and I debate this all the time. But um, I I think we need to be very careful. Um, and I, you know, I am so proud of the hospitality industry in particular. You know, who's pivoted like mad. Um, over the past couple of weeks to do whatever it takes to keep people employed and to keep, you know, some level of cash coming through the business. I think me and you, I mean, you were quite fortunate in the sense that we did a 
um, a capital raise in November of last year. So we're we're in a very strong sort of um, capital um, and cash position. So you know we've had a, lo- a number of discussions at a, you know at a management level and at a board level over the past couple of weeks about pivots and changes because our industry has gone into complete lockdown. We've decided not to do that. We've decided to be laser focused on what we came here to do, to bunker down and to make sure that when the doors open again, because they will, that me and you is a shining beacon that can help this industry survive and thrive on the other side. Because the one thing that we all know is that hospitality will be back. Mm. It's a it's a it's a part of the fabric of our of our life, but it will be different. And I think that there's a significant role for me and you to play on the other side in a world that is probably um, desperate for connection more than ever. But we want to do that in a cleaner or hygienic um, contact-free environment contactless way Um, so yeah so we're we're laser focused despite it being very tempting to be there and to help the industry when the doors open again no I I think I I understand I can see value in both sides but I think your move to me that's that's genius because you've got the time You've got a window of opportunity uh, to bunker down, to get the technology in place, and essentially, yeah, give society what to, what it wants, which is less friction and more hygiene in the transaction at restaurants, and hopefully a more beautiful experience. Because you know, if you look at you know a, a typical experience in a cafe, restaurant, or pub, you're spending you know ten minutes of your time, you know, paying a bill. And mm. the, the crap. So if we can get rid of some of that stuff, then I, it can That's be more nice. centered around the connection at the table. Um, so I, I'm yeah. curious to go back to the younger Stephen. Um, like, let's go back to perhaps early childhood Stephen. Like, who was it's Stephen? Been where- my beard, Kerwin. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I'm gonna I'm gonna assume that you and I are, you know, close in the length of our teeth. But um, where did you grow up, mate? Where were you born? So I grew up in St. Mary's in Sydney, so okay. deep, so in a you know sort of western suburbs of Sydney. I grew up in a family that, you know, had nothing, but we had everything. Um, you know, my my parents were small business people, um, and the dinner table conversations were centered around. You can do anything that you want to do in life, as long as you're willing to work hard enough. Um, and, you know, my parents instilled hope, um, confidence, um, and a desire to do good and desire to do good. Yeah, that's evident. The desire to do good, which is, is very attractive, but you also seem to have this apparent resilience and I'm curious as to how that was developed because often resilience isn't something that people are just born with, you know, it can be a characteristic that is, is adopted through observation, but more importantly through participation in, you know, role models around them. I'm curious from your experience, like where did yours come from? Was it sport? Was it the discipline of being, you know, made to sweep hair in a hairdressing salon every day? Where did that fundamental intrinsic drive come from? So my father was one of those typical Italian fathers who would be on the side of the soccer field screaming <laughs> for the entire game, right? Yeah. So no matter how good you were, you know, you needed to do better the next game. Yeah. But So one of the beautiful things my father instilled in me since I was a kid was this idea that the bigger they are, the harder they fall. So I'll never forget, you know, as a kid – you know, I was playing, you know, I was playing, you know, professional football, you know, soccer. Um, you know, I was playing the, at the top level I could at, for my age. Um, and it was my arch nemesis, a guy named Daniel Watkins, who, you know, he was, I was a fullback and he was a striker. So the only thing I ever cared about in the entire season was blocking Keeping him out. out. Like he, he was, he was a Goliath. And, you know, before a game, you know, I would give him death stares. I would try and outpsych him. Like it was, it was game on. My father always said, 
the bigger they are, the harder they fall. So despite the fact that this kid was, you know, a million times bigger than me, so much stronger, he was more experienced, he'd been playing the game for a lot longer, I wasn't scared of him. I knew I could take him on. And I think if I apply that to to business, when when I you know when I had little startup Dimmy and Open Table, the two point six billion dollar gorilla came from America and came to squash us. You know, you don't you don't connect the two dots, but in the back of my head, my father is there. And that belief that he instilled in me as a kid that the bigger they are, the harder they fall, means that you're not scared. It, it, it means that rather than you and the team sort of saying, you know, we're not good enough, these guys are going to squash us, you, you step up, you go to a new level, and it's game on and it's a battle. And, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that when Open Table came to Australia, and they threw everything at us. They tried to buy us. They tried to squash us. They tried to buy our customers. They didn't touch us because we stood up. We weren't scared and we were resilient. And I think a big part of that is owed to, you know, my soccer days as a kid. So you, you mentioned something quite, um, you know, quite subtly but quite profound. You were a professional soccer player. Yeah, so at the age of eight, at the age of eighteen, I was playing representative football for my state and for my club, um, <laughs> and I'll never forget this moment. But one day at training, my coach looked at us and said, and pointed to the to the big stadium, and said, "If if you don't have dreams to be in there, playing for your country." you shouldn't be here. So that night I went home, I sat in front of the fireplace and I said to my dad, it's over. I don't want to, I'm not going to play football anymore. And I broke his heart, but I knew it wasn't why I was on the planet. I wasn't here to play soccer. Yeah. I was here to do good and to make a dent in a planet in some way. And business was my avenue to do that. So mm. I quit soccer that day. And for the rest of you know my career, I've been obsessed over how do I solve problems? How do I make a dent? Um, and I, I, was, I was very – I never wanted to regret that decision. So, you know, I'm a big believer – that you make decisions, you back them, and you go with them. And I knew that if I was to apply myself in business and make something of it, I would never regret that decision that I made. Um, and, you know, I hold true to that today. So I quit that day and I went deep into my uh, when did you my When did you start your, your soccer career? How old? Under five? I was a bit later than most. I started at 10. Okay. So from 10 yeah. till 18, and was that um, – because obviously to get to a professional level of soccer, even in Australia, that's not necessarily something that comes easy to a lot of people. But was your your training regime for soccer, was it quite disciplined? Was it quite structured? Yeah, three th- you know, three to four times a week, you know. Most, where, I guess uh, the question I'm looking for is outside and- of soccer, where, where else did those kind of – structures show up where you had to consistently show up and perform at a high level was it just on the soccer field um that's a good question um i think i i didn't realize it at the at the time but ever since i was at school i had startups on the side Mm. so i've always been in this place of wanting to solve problems and wanting to do things. So, you know, as soon as I graduated school, you know, I was working and trying to get a startup up and running on the, on the side. And, you know, my very first job, you know, as soon as I got out of school, I was working for a, you know, a very successful Aussie entrepreneur. And I went to a, um, to a seminar 
I heard him speak and I fell in love with this guy. I just, I loved what he stood for. So I wrote him a letter and I asked if I could be his PA. As crazy as that sounds, I just wanted to learn. And I was obsessed over learning and development and growth. Um, and he gave me a job as a um, intern or, you know, work um, you know, work experience. And I did that for four weeks. And at the end of four weeks, he offered me a job. And I said yes under one proviso, and that is that I got to sit in the office that was just next to his. These were the days, you know, before, you know, <laughs> co-working spaces and the like. And I think that if I think back to my career growth, I think that decision at that point was the single most important decision of my life because it accelerated my career mm. many times over um, because I heard every phone chat, every meeting. I just saw the way he behaved, what he did. I I learned what to do and I learned what not to do in a very short, confined period of time. Yeah, right. So, so I don't know if I answered your question, but um, I think I've digressed a bit. But No, 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 but I, I know where I want to take it next. And, and that is because you mentioned something before when you were at Dimmy that there were many times, every day you, you, you were like, fuck, I just could, I, you, you felt like you could throw it away. But I'm also going to assume there are many other times in your life where you maybe felt the same way. Maybe it was different. I'm not sure. But what I'm curious to know is why did you keep going? Like what was it that made you stick every single day when you were like, fuck, I could throw this away right now? This is like an adult daycare center. Kevin, I think I think when you're not in it for money, mm. I think when you're in it for something that's bigger than you and you have a purpose and a conviction that is so big, and it keeps you awake at night. It wakes you at four o'clock in the morning. I think when you're fighting for that, you do you become unstoppable. And despite the loneliness, despite the international bullying, despite the you know you're running out of money, you know you're losing staff members, despite all of that shit that happens in startup because inside you, you believe in something so deep, it's difficult, if not impossible to stop. Mm. And I'd count, the only other bit that I'd add to that is that I was very fortunate in that, or I am very fortunate that my brother Leo runs, you know, one of the top advertising agencies on the planet, sort of based out of New York. Um, and we've always been remarkably close. And whenever things got tough, I'd jump on the phone to him. And he was always a year or two years ahead of me on the startup journey. So his advice to me was always suck it up, it's tough, it's shit, but keep going. And I think when you, you know, when you've got somebody around you who is perhaps, the, you know, has been there, has done it, has been through the trenches and they can see the other side, it gives you enough strength to go another day. Mm. And I think in startup, sometimes that's all you need is enough to keep going another day or another few days. So I was very fortunate to have, you know, my brother, um, you know, and a conviction that is, and a belief that is so deep. A lot of people talk about the importance of motivation and knowing what to do. Like I need to, I, you know, I either need a plan or I need to be motivated. But you talk about two concepts that I see very apparent, which is obsession and naivety. Uh, where you find these people that are obsessed with an idea. In most cases, it's got nothing to do with making money. It's got everything to do with you know, solving a problem or a cause. And it's level of na naivety where they think that they can actually do it, whereas in the, the circumstances of the situation at that time, they can't. But by virtue of that naivety, that naive, that naive nature, they start to surround and circulate and create. And so I'm curious, from your perspective, how important has obsession and naivety been in the journey of your life to date? 
Because it's obviously that you're not a you're very switched on guy, and I'm not I'm not pulling away from that by any stretch of the imagination. But I am curious to know how much of your life do you look back in retrospect and go, "Fuck, I really just I was just having a go." I I'd say all of it. Like I, I, I <laughs> no, but it's it's true. Like I do I do truly believe that an idea is sub one percent of the of a success story for a startup and it's all about the resilience it's all about the passion and the people that you surround yourself with and you know if i wasn't naive i would absolutely never have quit my job at hilton if i wasn't naive i would absolutely have taken the virgin job you know like there's so many times in my in my career where i think you know, you've got to be a bit ignorant, a bit naive, a bit um, obsessed if you're going to change something that's been a particular way, you know, for hundreds of years. Um, a lot of people now seem to talk about a concept that was made famous by Walter Isaacson um, in his book about Steve Jobs where he discussed his ability to create this reality distortion field. Yeah. Um, and I guess when you think about what a reality distortion field is, it's it's a combination of ingredients. <laughs> there's a level of obsession, there's a level of ignorance, there's a level of naive, naivety. Um, but it's essentially a situation where we're able to distort the reality, not just for ourselves to be able to see something that doesn't exist, but also to be able to distort the reality for other people to be able to help them see something that at the same time doesn't exist. Is this something that you have found has been um, – because people often, you, you know, they use it as something, oh, I, I, Steve Jobs had it. And I've gone, well, now that I'm aware of it, fuck, I can think of, a thousand, you know, 100 people, even including myself, that use that, that have that, that's a part of their their makeup on an almost daily basis. Some people would call it, you know, creating a vision board and other people would, you know, just call it, you know, something different. I'm curious for you. Yeah, I think, you know – I think the single most important thing that any founder can do or the, the thing that we inherently do without realizing it is that we articulate the vision, we mm. believe in the vision, and then we find very practical ways of bringing that alive on a day-to-day basis. Um, so for me, it's always centered around an obsession with the customer. Um, so, you know, when you've got a a team that's, you know, locked away in the office, you know, day in and day out, you know, as a founder, it's our job to connect that with how it's going to make lives better, how we're going to help make the customer experience better, how we're going to make, um, you know, the lives of operators better. So um, the other thing that Steve Jobs did, which, you know, um, he's very unique in this regard He had a vision and ambition that was bigger than anybody, but there was no level of detail that he missed. And I think it's something in that perfection of the big idea and the detail, and I think that's where the magic um, lies. The supply chain. Um, I've always kind of had this belief that I never look at a man in isolation. A man is nothing more than an expression of his routines that are practiced on a daily basis. You know, some people would call them habits. Um, I'm curious, you know, do you mind if I ask how old you are, Stephen? I, I that- turned 40 two weeks ago. Wow, congratulations, mate, 4-0. <laughs> <clears throat> a, a, weird, now- a weird way to spend, uh, to celebrate 40, I tell you. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> like you, in isolation. But um, I am curious to know, first of all, how did you celebrate your birthday? We can, oh, that's secondly, but firstly, routines like clearly you've achieved a level of um you know success in your life uh, both personally and professionally one of the things i've observed that a lot of very um high performing people will do is they'll typically engage in routines um for a whole range of reasons some people will call it structure some people will call it discipline one of the things i've observed is when you know decision making fatigue is something that affects all of us uh, and the more 
the more we have to use our brain when it comes to thinking or talking or even consuming information, the less faculty we have left over for being able to think about, you know, the more important executive stuff. So I'm curious for you, do you use routines to avoid decision fatigue or just to make life easier or just as a way of improving your life? And if so, like what are the, you know, your top three routines that you, uh, that you, that you do every single day? Yeah, I, I don't I don't know if it's being boring, but I you know I'm I'm a very routine driven person. Like you know, I've got to have my yoga, I've got to have my my clear headspace. So you know, so I'm a I'm a man of routine. Um, so the key things that I do that you know have become habit forming for me, um, you know, is number one, I'll wake at four o'clock most mornings, um, because I I need the couple of hours before life starts mm. to get ahead to think to plan to be creative because um, I find that once the day begins that you know you're in a whirlwind and you kind of lose control over that to an extent so waking early has been very important for me number one um, number two and I, I learned this the hard way through through Dimmy is I lost um, um, I lost my balance. So I'd, I'd set, I'd put everything into, uh, into me and you. So the second, sorry, into Dimmy. Um, so the second thing that I've found to be critical to my, um, ability to be a great partner, but in particular to be a great leader is, uh, is my yoga. So without fail, I practice yoga three to four times a week. Um, and the crazy thing for me, you know, through my yoga is it's not, um, it's not just an out. It's actually where I get a lot of my great um, ideas, and it's where I can, mm. you know, where I can connect. Um, so the the second one is absolutely my yoga practice is a staple and is definitely a you know an important part of my life. Um, and the third thing that you know I fail with it is at the moment, but um, you know a three day weekend once a month where you can just stop get away, read, um, and just revisit some of your life goals, you know? So, so, you know, on, you know, the 1st of January, um, every year, you know, I and my partner, Lisa, we lock ourselves down for the day and we map out the year. Um, and we start to think about, you know, where do we want to be? What do we want to do? Who are the great people that we want to, you know, in our lives and, you know, how do we make sure we're creating a life that we want to be living? Um, so I think every month stopping and revisiting that is, is important. So mm. I'd say there's, there's some of the staples and some of the habits that, um, you know, are in, in important ingredient in my life. Mate, you've, you've clearly over your career built an incredible reputation, but you've also built an incredible network uh, and incredible teams. How big was Dimmy at its height? Under your uh, leadership? So Dimmy was 50 people. 50 people. Um, I'm curious to know from you, first of all, if you identify this, your style of leadership and secondly to you, what is the role of a good leader? Yeah. So I'd say, I'd say there's a, there's a fundamental, I was walking down the street with my chairman a couple of, um, a couple of years back. And he said to me, he said, Steve, there's, there's founders and there's CEOs, and the best founders know when it's time to hand over to a CEO. And I don't know if he was dropping a gentle hint to me at the time, but <laughs> I think um, I think over the years I've you know I've definitely realised that this you know I'm a startup guy. I'm a zero to three to four year guy. Like I you know I love bootstrap. I love getting in. I love creating a passion, a purpose, a vision, and you know, getting a, a a bunch of exceptional people on that bus to make that vision come alive. When life gets into routine and operations, and the business gets big, that's not me. That's not that's not how I function. Um, so I'd say that you know I'm a I'm a highly energetic, driven, visionary leader is what I'd hope. Um, and you know, I, you know, I lead, um, I lead through, through that rather than, you know, being a traditional CEO who's, you know, um, I, you know, 
much more methodical, much more budget, P&L um, driven. I'm much more heart, vision, um, passion uh, driven, which I think is what startups uh, need. So, so it sounds to me like you're very heart-centered, like a heart-centered leader, very much in the transformational leadership space. Yeah. And, I, I, and that's an assumption. That's an assumption. I'm throwing that out there. And let me tell you why I feel like that because I feel like you're the kind of guy that if you've got a team member that needs your support, you'll be the kind of guy that will sit down and talk them through it. Like you'll be the kind of guy to have a chat. Oh, am I, I think, wrong? I, I think that if I think about the team I've got at me and you, I've, I, I've managed somehow to get some of the most talented people on the planet to be part of this ride. And mm. so if I think about my role as a, as a, as as a, a founder, mm. it's to attract the best people, to inspire these people and to help them create some of the best work of their life. And I think as a founder, if you can do those three things, then you will inevitably create an amazing business and a business where people want to be and want to be a part of. Um, so, yes, you know, my team is my family. I love them deeply. Um, and, you know, it's, um, yeah, we're on, we're on a ride together. Um, we're on a bus together. Um, and, you know, um, we're at the very beginning of, of an amazing roller coaster. Intuition. It seems to me like you're, you're quite connected. You use a lot of very um, connected, mindful language. You do a lot of yoga. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, like, has intuition played a role in your life at all? And what is your relationship with intuition? Yeah, I'd say a lot. I, I'd say that, um, you know, I've, I've inherited that from my mum. You know, my mum makes all of her decisions in life using no data and everything's in the gut. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so as a leader, I try and use um, a bit of data and a bit of intuition. Um, but, you know, it. I can feel stuff that's happening in the business before it happens. You know, mm. I can feel when somebody's having an off day, you know, when somebody's out of sync, when somebody's got something going on. Um, and that you, you definitely, um, I think that that is a really important ingredient for any uh, founder or any leader. Um, I, I'd say that um, the, the, in my early years at Dimmy, I was not that person. I was a ruthless, um, sharp, um, you know, just get shit done um, leader. And I think perhaps in maturity, perhaps through, you know, um, my yoga journey, I've realized that there is a better way, a smarter way. And um, to bring people on the ride, I think, you, you know, you need a much deeper connection. Um, so, yes, I think born out of my mum, but, um, you know, perhaps, you know, backed up with a, a lot of sort of business smarts and, um, and data that sits around it. But intuition um is a critical ingredient for me do you have that in, in any way tied up in any form of uh spirituality or religion like what's your your philosophy not not so much i you know i believe there is a somebody bigger than us um you know as a as an italian kid we were brought to you know catholic church you know every sunday um i i don't practice religion um i do believe there is a um, a being that's much bigger and greater than us, and I just I believe in just doing good. Um, so probably less linked to a religion and more linked to just you know being a good person. Personal philosophy and relationships, mate. How have you navigated the uh, the the radically tricky realm of relationships in not just a startup space? Look, relationships are hard enough just in life, but when you add a relationship into the context of a, a business, you you got another kind of thing coming. But you add a, the context of relationships in startup and businesses at scale, growing quickly, you know, buyouts. How did you manage that? And has this been a process for you to learn to adapt and grow to? I think when you fail a couple of times, you learn you've got to be better. Um, and I think, you know, I am... Um, I've been through some pain in the past where, you know, I was so obsessed over the baby that was my business. I kind of forgot family, friends, and 
my partner, you know, through that through that ride. So I think inevitably, you know, we learn through a bit of pain. Um, so you know, my partner Lisa and I, you know, um, we recently got engaged. Um, I'm probably Mad congratulations, very- by the way. <laughs> Mo- Thanks, M- Mazel tov. I don't know why she said yes, but she did. Um, <laughs> it doesn't fucking matter. It doesn't matter. I got her in a special moment. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm I'm very fortunate in the sense that I I have a truly remarkable um, person who shares very similar values to me um, and knows what I'm going through because she's also a like-minded bit fucked up crazy um entrepreneur so you know so um so i think there's a level of empathy um and understanding that i think forms a foundation of a healthy relationship number one number two is the values that we have are deeply connected like we you know we're deeply rooted to family and friends like that's just such an integral part of our life um, you know, being good people. Uh, so, so we're surrounded by values that connect us. And I think the third thing that we've learned together is because we're big picture people and because we're both entrepreneurs, inevitably that results in, it can result in every conversation, every dinner table conversation being around how can you solve problems how can, what about a new idea? What about this? What about that? So we've been very mindful of making sure that as every day clocks off, that we'll chat work for five or 10 minutes, but then that's it. Um, so, you know, we we get into the, the love and the relationship and the business side, um, we park to the side so that we don't end up in a relationship that's centered around business. So I think that's probably been one of the most important ingredients for our, uh, for our relationship. Yeah, right. And some good advice there, I think, for everyone uh, at the same time. And yeah, I, I can echo that. I've learned some incredible relationships of not only what I do want, what I don't want, what to do, not what not to do. And I think, you know, relationships are a little bit like business, you know, we, we, we work it out as we go. Um, I only had this realization when we first sat down. I was like, because I've seen your photo, but it wasn't until we sat down. I was like, fuck, I actually remember you now. You actually were on level 11 uh, Berry Street. What was it? Were you on Berry Street? Uh, <laughs> we were, I don't know if you remember, but we were actually in the office right beside you on level 11. What fucking number Berry Street was that? <laughs> yeah, oh, we, were we were right there. 15, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, wow. Uh, I remember because yeah. I think you guys at one stage had the office beside us. But anyway, that's where I, I now recognize your face. So it's uh, yeah, wow. that was maybe, gosh, when were you in 77 Berry Street? Uh, 15, 20 years back, yeah. I was actually going to say 15, 20 years, but I didn't want to seem like I was a real old fella. But, anyway. yeah. <laughs> but we are. We definitely are. Mate, Stephen, I, uh, mate, I've loved this chat. Like This has been a phenomenal conversation, a real, uh, a, a really good one. But I'm just curious, I want to ask my last question in a bit of a 360-degree multi-ordinate kind of fashion. And, you know, sometimes people ask, what's the best piece of advice you'd give? What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Um, I'm just more interested in your perspective. Like if there was one perspective that you could share with people that you think would be really helpful, if it's a saying, a quote, um, a piece of advice, like uh, a mantra, what's one thing you, you, you would love to share that you think would, um, you know, help impact people and help them? Well, I think as a kid growing up, my mum would <clears throat> run into our room, you know, at five or six o'clock every morning, open the blinds, you know, the sun is up, let's go. So let's go has always been a core mantra in my life. Um, it's, you know, something that I live by, you know, personally in business and across, you know, all aspects. I think I'd say right now that the world is going through, you know, the most challenging time that we will ever go through as human beings. Um, I just, the only thing that I would say is that let's, let's remember that there will be another side. Let's remember that we will get through it. And on the other side, there is great opportunity. Um, mm. So, you know, let's, let's be nice to each other. 
um, let's be supportive to each other um, and let's be resilient enough to know that no matter how challenged we are in business or in life, um, we will get through it. We will get through to, uh, to the other side. Um, and on the other side, there is great opportunity. So be optimistic, be positive, um, and be appreciative of the fact that we will make it through and the doors will open again. Mate, I think that's a very sound piece of advice for a, a challenging time for a lot of people right now. But, mate, thank you. Uh, thank you from myself, from my team. This has been a phenomenal interview. If people want to find out more about you, I know you're not a big public brand necessarily, but where can people go to find out more about you if they want to? Uh, yeah, on LinkedIn, Stephen Premutica. Um, via LinkedIn is the best way. Fantastic. I don't Ladies have an account, Kerwin. I, um, <laughs> yeah, I don't blame I you. Honestly, if I had my life over, I probably would have yeah, sold something and been very, very quiet behind the scenes. But, uh, mate, can't thank you enough, and I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, buddy. Take care. All the best. Thanks, brother. That was brilliant. This episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And please do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you get to see all of these interviews in the flesh. Share this podcast with your friends and drop me a review on iTunes. I would love to hear what you guys think and also let you know your comments help make sure that we keep producing killer content just like this. And if you'd like to stay up to date with all of my movements, upcoming podcasts, events, and much more, please jump onto the website, kerwinray.com, and also check us out on all social media on the handle at Kerwin Ray. Thanks for joining us.